Welcome to our service. 
Uh, we're going to begin uh, by reading uh, some verses together from Psalm 72. Uh, so we'll stand together and read these uh, as a congregation uh, before we have our first song. So would you stand with me uh, as we read this call to worship from Psalm 72 verses 18 and 19. Praise be to the Lord God, the God of Israel, who alone does marvellous deeds. Praise be to his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and Amen. Matthew's Gospel, we're going through uh, the section where we read about the death of Jesus Christ. Uh, and this death was prophesied uh, in the Old Testament uh, over and over again, not just in direct prophecy, but in uh, the stories like the Exodus and such things. Uh, and one place that's very clear 
in its references to what happened to Jesus is Isaiah chapter 53. Uh, and we're going to read that chapter together, uh, and Abby is going to come and read Isaiah 53 for us. the Lord being revealed. He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray, each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, yet who of his generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living, for the transgression of, the pe of my people he was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked, and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Well, let us pray. Merciful Father, we read of the sacrifice of the suffering servant, your son, Jesus Christ. And we are amazed that he would go through this for us. Now we, we confess that we are sinners. We're not lovely people who deserve your mercy. We are more sinful than we could ever know. But here we see that we are more loved than we can possibly imagine. And tonight, Lord, we confess our sin to you and again acknowledge our need of your mercy. We confess that we have sinned against you in thought and word and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. 
We have not loved our neighbours as ourselves. And we are truly sorry and we repent. For the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us. And may we delight in your will and walk in your ways. And may we do these things to the glory of your name. And as we come to your word this evening, we pray that that would help us to do this. Help us to see your great love for us and help us to respond in lives of devotion to you. And we ask this in the name of our Savior Jesus. Amen. Well, if you return with me uh, to Matthew uh, chapter 26, and this evening we're going to be in verses 57 uh, down to verse 68 of Matthew 26. Uh, so you may remember last week, uh, Matthew showed us how Jesus and his disciples uh, prepared for the suffering that was ahead of them. And as we come to verse 57, 
Uh, that time of suffering is no longer just ahead of them. Uh, that time has now arrived. Uh, and last week we ended with Jesus being arrested at night. And here we see him facing the religious leaders who are plotting his death. So let's read from verses 57 uh, down to verse 68. Let's hear uh, the word of God. Those who had arrested Jesus took him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the teachers of the law and the elders had assembled. But Peter followed him at a distance, right up to the courtyard of the high priest. He entered and sat down with the guards to see the outcome. The chief priest and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for false evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death. But they did not find any, though many false witnesses came forward. Finally, two came forward and declared, This fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. Then the high priest stood up and said to Jesus, Are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent. The high priest said to him, I charge you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Messiah, the Son of God. You have said so, Jesus replied. But I say to all of you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his clothes and said, He has spoken blasphemy. Why do we need any more witnesses? Look, now you have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? He is worthy of death, they answered. Then they spat in his face and struck him with their fists. Others slapped him and said, prophesy to us, Messiah, who hit you? This is the word of God. Well, I've entitled uh, this message, Jesus on Trial. Now, some of you have uh, perhaps seen a, a courtroom drama. Uh, I don't know if there are any courtroom dramas where uh, the, 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 the viewer of the program is uh, the jury who makes the verdict on what is going on in the court. Uh, I did have a brief look to try and find one, but I couldn't see any uh, where that takes place. Uh, but there are many a courtroom drama where you have to, as you're watching it, make a decision on whether someone is uh, guilty or not guilty of a particular crime. Uh, and what Matthew does in this passage is he puts the reader uh, in the part of a viewer of the trial of Jesus Christ. Uh, he puts us in the position of watching what's going on and calling us to make a verdict. Now, in one sense, Matthew, of course, has been doing that all through his gospel. Uh, all through, Matthew has been showing us that Jesus is God's promised king who has come to save his people from their sins. 
And as he's been showing us this, he's been doing so in order that we can see and make a judgment ourselves of whether Jesus really is that Messiah who is promised. Now, of course, there is only one right verdict. We're going to see that as we go through. But that really is what Matthew does as he presents his gospel. He's showing us that. And here, as with a TV trial, the kind that I was talking about, whether it exists or not, we, the viewer or the reader, have to give our verdict of Jesus. And the key question is in verse 66. Look at what uh, Caiaphas, who is the, really the presiding judge here, look what he asks at the beginning of that verse. He says, what do you think? What do you think? And tonight, that's what we're going to ask. Or what rather Matthew is asking of all of you and of me. What do you think? Now, I know some of us, most of us here, no doubt, are Christians. Uh, we know what we think about Jesus. But it's good, isn't it, to think again uh, on Jesus so that we can know for sure again and again that he really is the Son of God, the Messiah, who has come to save us from our sins. Uh, there are times in our Christian lives where we do have doubts, and so we need to come back to the Gospels and see again that this is really true. So let's walk through this, this courtroom drama, and let's see what we think of Jesus. And we begin in verse 57, which sets the context of where we are. Jesus has just been arrested after his prayer time in Gethsemane. And he's prepared for his trial, which is now upon him, and he's determined he's going to follow his father's will. His father's will that his people will be saved from their sins. And those who arrested Jesus lead him to Caiaphas' house. Now we met Caiaphas, you may remember, at the beginning of chapter 26. So just turn back to the beginning of, the, of, the, of this chapter, uh, to verses 3 to 5. Let's read those verses again where we met Caiaphas and uh, his friends, uh, the elders and uh, chief priests. So in verse 3, the chief priests and the elders of the people assembled in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and they schemed to arrest Jesus secretly and kill him. But not during the festival, they said, or there may be a riot among the people. So at the beginning of this chapter... Uh, this group assemble to plot the death of Jesus. And now, after some help from Judas Iscariot, they are all assembled again, this time to follow through with their plans. They are determined to have Jesus put to death. Now, they've already arrested him secretly. This is all being done at night time. And now they want to follow through on the plot to kill him. And verse 59 tells us that the, the whole Sanhedrin had gathered. Now, the, the Sanhedrin were the Jewish religious leaders who administered the Jewish religious law amongst the Jewish people in Israel. There were 71 uh, rulers in the Sanhedrin, and it was led by the high priest. Uh, there didn't need to be all 71 assembled in order to give a ruling. There needed to be a quorum and that what, that's what would have happened here. There would have been maybe 71, we're not told, but there would have been at least enough to deliver a verdict about Jesus. And what is interesting is that they are meeting at nighttime. 
Now, courts don't normally meet at nighttime. They normally meet in the daytime. Uh, there's, that, that's not just because people don't like to, to stay awake all night, but there is something about, isn't there, the, the light of the day that symbolizes that the court is there to bring to light uh, and, and, and uh, truth and bring justice. But th this was not a court of justice. They met at night because this was a court of conspiracy. The verdict to, court, uh, to, to the Sanhedrin has already been, gi been, been given. They want to kill Jesus. But in verse 58, there is another witness to this courtroom drama. Notice verse 58. Peter is following at a distance there, isn't he? Uh, he's not quite so brave now. Last week, Peter uh, drew out his sword and he cut off the ear of the, uh, the, the servant of the high priest. But now he's not so brave. He's timidly following, trying not to be noticed. And he goes into the courtyard of the high priest. Now, the houses of officials in those days would have had a courtyard in the middle. And that's where all the action would take place with the, the soldiers being there, the guards. Uh, and, and, and lots of people would mill around in that area. And Peter, no doubt, was trying to get lost there, uh, unnoticed. So we, 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 we read that he can watch and see the outcome. So Peter's staying there. He wants to see what's going to happen here. And so we, the reader, are kind of with Peter here. We watch and we see this trial unfold. And there's various aspects to the, the, this trial. The first of which, um, Matthew shows us this. Matthew's teaching us different things. He's teaching us, first of all, that innocence is confirmed. Notice in verse 59 how the Sanhedrin, the court that is supposed to be administering justice, what are they looking for? Do you see? False evidence. The court, supposed to be administering justice, are looking for false evidence that they can use to put Jesus to death. Now, no doubt, if there was some true evidence, they would have used it. But obviously, they couldn't find anything true. But they needed something that would enable them to convict Jesus of a crime that would carry the death sentence. And so in the absence of anything true, they were looking for false evidence. Now, during this time in a, in a court of law, when the Romans were in power, the Romans would allow an occupied territory to administer local laws for the local people. But they kept the death penalty for themselves. This was to stop local people putting to death supporters of the Roman occupiers. And so the Jewish court could not put Jesus to death themselves. They had to find something that would enable the Roman governor, we'll see him later, Pilate, that would enable him to say, yes, he is worthy of death. And so they're scrambling around to find something that would both be against the Jewish law and put him to death and the Roman law that would put him to death. And verse 60 tells us that they had lots of false evidence from lots of false witnesses, but the problem was that they needed to find, according to the law, two witnesses that would agree in order to convict someone of a crime. And so the images of them scrambling around, getting loads of 
witnesses for people, uh, witnesses of different uh, evidence, but they couldn't find anything that would match. Until we read, finally, in verse 60, two came forward and declared, this fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. Well, this was, this was good for, for Caiaphas because desecration of a sacred place was a crime that was a capital crime. If it could be proved that Jesus was going to destroy a sacred place like the temple, Pilate would definitely convict. And there was two witnesses that would, 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 would say this. Well, where did this charge come from? Well, Jesus has spoken in Matthew's gospel quite a lot about the temple, hasn't he? You may remember in Matthew chapter 24, Jesus prophesied that it would be destroyed, but that was to his disciples. It wasn't public knowledge. I mean, Judas Iscariot may well have said something, but we're not told that he did that. So it's unlikely to be from there. Jesus had gone into the temple and turned over the tables of the money changers. He was acting as the judge of the temple. Uh, but who knows, it, it, might, it might have been that. Uh, Matthew chapter 12 and verse 6, Jesus tells us how he is greater than the temple. But this incident probably and most likely refers to an incident in John's gospel where Jesus cleanses the temple and then says this. Destroy this temple, and I will raise it again in three days. They replied, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you are going to raise it in three days. But the temple he had spoken of was his body. Notice how Jesus' words are misconstrued here in Matthew's gospel. Jesus never said, I am able and there was no threat that Jesus made against the temple. He was speaking about his body. But what they say in Matthew's gospel here does sound similar to what Jesus says here in John. And so more than one witness came forward and said, yeah, I, I heard him say something like that. Having a crime worthy of death to accuse Jesus with would have pleased Caiaphas very much. And so in verse 62, Caiaphas asks Jesus to answer these charges against him. And he is shocked that Jesus doesn't jump to defend himself. Now, normally, if you're faced with an accusation, maybe this happens uh, in, your, in your home. If, if you've got siblings, this, this happens all the time, doesn't it? Uh, you're, they, they tell on you, such as my brother did this or my sister did that. And the first thing you do, even if you did it, isn't it true? I didn't do that, it wasn't me, or it was their fault, or you jump to make a, a defense of yourself. Even if the accusation is true, you try and defend yourself, don't you? But what's going on here is amazing. Jesus is accused of something here, and he doesn't say a word. And Caiaphas needs some kind of admission of guilt from Jesus... This isn't a normal court where evidence is gathered before a trial. This is a corrupt court making it up as it goes along. And Jesus knows that even with these witnesses, they've got nothing on him. Because it's ever so hard to prove, isn't it? Even with witnesses, what someone said, 
And even if it can be proved someone said that, it's really hard to prove the motive behind what was said or the tone or the context or anything like that. Without some admission from Jesus, this would not stand up in court. Pilate would never execute Jesus for something as flimsy as this. Caiaphas needs Jesus to say something. And Jesus knew this. And so rather than jump to his defense, Jesus, in verse 63, we read, remained silent. He was not going to give Caiaphas or this this corrupt court what it wanted. But his silence was also, in addition to confounding the court, fulfilling the scriptures. Because hundreds of years before Jesus was even in this court, Isaiah had said this would happen. Isaiah 53, verse 7. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. The Sanhedrin could not find anything with which to convict Jesus because Jesus was innocent. Matthew's showing us that. The other Gospels do the same uh, thing. They show us over and again, Jesus was completely innocent of any crime. He never sinned, not even once, not in word, not in thought, not in deed. And I think um, often we're rightly amazed at the various miracles Jesus did. But isn't it just as amazing that he never sinned once, not once, not one, not even a thought awry. And because he is the perfect man, he is able to die in the place of sinners as a sacrifice pleasing to his father. Jesus is led like a lamb to the slaughter, the Passover lamb, the lamb without blemish. And here in the trial of Jesus, Matthew shows us that his innocence is confirmed. They couldn't even make false evidence stick, let alone something he actually did wrong. And we can know for sure that it was a sinless man who died in the place of sinners. And it had to be thus, because a sinner has to pay for their own sin. They can't pay for anyone else's sin, they have to pay for their own But Jesus didn't have to pay for his own, so he could pay for ours. He died in our place so we could be forgiven by the Father. So innocence here is confirmed. They couldn't find anything on him. But Jesus is not only an innocent man. This is more than a man. And we see this in the trial, as Matthew secondly shows us, That identity is confessed. So Caiaphas is frustrated. He's not getting the confession he needs from Jesus. And so he changes tack quite dramatically. The temple charge is left behind. And a new charge seems to be drawn up. Notice at the end of verse 63. Look at what is going on. Uh, He charges, uh, Caiaphas charges Jesus under oath. So this was a courtroom term that meant Jesus was legally obliged to respond. And the question Caiaphas poses is fascinating. Notice it. He says, tell us 
if you are the Messiah, the Son of God. Well, where did this come from? Where did, where, where, how did Caiaphas come up with this? This question comes from someone, the high priest of Israel, who seems to understand what Jesus has been claiming by the actions he has taken over the last week, especially. If you remember what's been going on in Matthew's gospel, Jesus has ridden into Jerusalem on a donkey, a statement that declared he is Israel's king. Jesus accepted the praises of those who were crying out, Hosanna to the son of David. Jesus cleared out the temple, claiming that he was the judge. And Jesus has been uh, debating with the religious leaders and giving parables that are clearly stating that he is God's son. And Caiaphas has been listening. Caiaphas understands what Jesus has been claiming. He's been claiming all these things that scream out Messiah. And if Jesus claims to be, a, to be the Messiah, then Jesus is claiming to be a king. And if Jesus is claiming to be a king, then the Roman rulers would be glad to put to death someone who is threatening their rule with a claim like that. And so the temple charge is left behind, and here, something else comes up. Something that would mean the Roman rulers would be glad to put him to death. So Caiaphas's question has what is needed to convict Jesus, both the in the religious court of the Jews... Because if he claims to be the son of God, we'll see that that would be a claim, according to this court, that would be blasphemous. And in the civil court of the Romans, because he's claiming to be king. And as this question is asked, you can imagine in the, the court, there is great suspense. What is he going to say? And what he does say in verse 64 is stunning. He says, you have said so. Jesus replies by saying that Caiaphas, the high priest of Israel, who hates Jesus, has just confessed with his own lips who Jesus is. But whilst Caiaphas has got the right words in this confession, he does not understand what he is saying. And so Jesus uses a phrase that we might be familiar with. Jesus says, but I say to all of you, now, why is that phrase familiar? Where have we heard that before? Well, we've heard it before a great deal in the Sermon on the Mount. In the Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus speaks about the Old Testament law, he speaks about the interpretation of the Pharisees. You have heard it said. And then he says, but I say to you, and then gives the true interpretation of what this really means. And so what he's doing here is he's saying to Caiaphas, you have said, I am the Messiah, the Son of God, but I say to you, I'm going to tell you, Caiaphas, what you've just said and the meaning of what you've just said. You don't get it. Here's what this means. And then Jesus says, notice in verse, at the end of verse 64, but I say to all of you, to you the court, from now on, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. Jesus tells the court from now on, so after this time, after the cross, the next time that you see me, 
won't be in this court. You will see me as the Son of Man with authority over all things. And Jesus uses here his favorite term for himself, which is the Son of Man. And he quotes, as he has done often, from Daniel chapter 7 and verse 14, and Psalm 110 verse 1, which speaks of the Son of Man being seated at the right hand of God. And he admits to being, not only being the Messiah, the, the Son of God, but also the Son of Man, who is given all power and all authority over all people, over all time, including the very court over which, in which he is standing. So Jesus is the innocent man who goes to the cross, but he is also at the same time the mighty God who rules over all. And in this trial, his identity is confessed by Caiaphas and by Jesus himself and clarified by Jesus. He is the man who is God. And it's interesting to note, don't miss this, that when accused of a crime he did not commit, Jesus remained silent, knowing that there was no evidence whatsoever to convict him. But when he is accused of something that is true, even though that would put him to death, Jesus speaks loud and clear. In this confession, Jesus is saying to Caiaphas and the whole court, you think you have power over me? You see me in a court now, but from now on, I'm going to be judging you. Jesus is the perfect judge being tried in a corrupt court by corrupt judges whom he will judge himself. And that's just one of the many ironies in this passage that Matthew draws out for us. And that's the final aspect of this trial that we see. We've seen the innocence is confirmed and the identity is confessed, but Matthew clearly shows us in this passage that irony is conveyed. There is irony all through this passage. We see that he is innocent and the judges are criminals in the way they conduct the proceedings. We see that Jesus is accused of being able to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days when he is the temple and will be killed himself and rise in three, on the third day. We see that Jesus is the truth, is telling the truth, and yet he is the one who is put under oath, while everyone else in the court is looking for false testimony. But perhaps the biggest irony of all is what we see in these final verses. It's in what Jesus is condemned for. Blasphemy. Because if Jesus' confession is true, which it is, he is the Son of God, then those who are accusing him of blasphemy are the blasphemers, aren't they? In verse 65, the, the high priest tears his clothes. Now, this is a sign of great anguish and lament. Interestingly, and, and perhaps another irony, is that the Old Testament law stated that the high priest is forbidden from tearing his clothes. That's, and if you're taking notes, that's Leviticus 21, verses 10 and 11. We're not going to go there, but he's not supposed to do that. 
And here he, he tears his robes and he gives the verdict that he has reached. He has spoken blasphemy. Now, blasphemy means to insult the name and character of God. And if Jesus was not who he says he, he, he is, then that, that would be blasphemy. If he's saying that he is the Son of God and he isn't, well, then it is blasphemy. And because Caiaphas doesn't accept Jesus' confession, he charges him with blasphemy, which is punishable in the Jewish law by death. And since the whole Sanhedrin are there, there was plenty of witnesses to this confession, no more witnesses are needed. And so in verse 66, Caiaphas wants to wrap things up. He says, what do you think? He calls for a verdict. He calls for a judgment on the judge of all the earth. And the religious council, ironically, the ones who believe they are the people of God, say that the one who claims to be the son of God is worthy of death. And again, notice the irony in that. Is Jesus worthy of death? Absolutely not. He was innocent of all crimes. His confession about himself is completely true. So the one who is innocent and true is the one who is called worthy of death. Do you see the irony? And then in verses 67 and 68, the one with all power and all authority is spit upon, struck, slapped, and mocked. And here is the big irony here. This is the grossest form of blasphemy imaginable, isn't it? If blasphemy is insulting the name and character of God, Jesus, the Son of God, is insulted terribly here, isn't he? It doesn't need much explanation to know that spitting in someone's face is an insult to their person. So is punching. So is slapping. It translates into our day and age from the Roman times very much. We know what those things mean. And here's another irony. Isn't it ironic that in the, the mockery, where Jesus is told to prophesy who hit you, and that's what they're doing, they're mocking him. You know, if you, you, you think you're the Messiah, the Son of God, then prophesy who hit you. The irony here is that Jesus knows exactly every single one of those who hit him. He knows them better than they know themselves. He knows their names. He knows where they live. He knows, he knows everything about them. He knows what they've done. He knows their sin. He knows their thoughts. He knows it all. And we've seen Jesus in the Gospels identify people that he had never met before. He knows what's going on. He knows who hits him. And yet here he is taking the mocking and the beating as if he is the criminal he's accused of being. Jesus could have stopped all of this. He still, just like we read in the passage last week, has the power over those legions of angels. The power hasn't left him here. He is God in the flesh, 
every bit as much as he has always been, as he's being slapped and spit upon here. He's, he, he isn't any, a different being anymore. He's the same. And yet he did not stop it. Why? Why? Because it's the plan of his father to be treated this way so that he can be led to the cross to be numbered among the transgressors and bear our iniquities. And here is the final irony that Matthew conveys. In doing all of this, the court think that they are in control, don't they? They think that they are dealing with a problem that threatens their power. But all of the time, they are fulfilling the scriptures that they claim to believe, and in doing so, are fulfilling the plan of the God who is really in control of this. And that God is the one who is standing in front of them, and they are spitting on and slapping and punching. And that plan is to save his people from their sins. That's the reason Jesus doesn't stop what's going on here. He doesn't stop because he won't stop until he's finished the work of saving his people. He went that far for you and for me because he loves us. Isn't that amazing love? That Jesus would go through this for us. And so I close by asking the question, what do you think? What's your verdict as you see this drama unfold? Are you like Caiaphas? Caiaphas, he, he, he knew the truth, didn't he, in his confession. He saw who Jesus was, but he suppresses the truth so he can keep his own power. And how often do people do that? They suppress the truth about Jesus. They're not going to follow him because they want some semblance of power and control in their lives. I don't want to follow Jesus. I want to do things my own way. Are you like Caiaphas? Or perhaps you're like the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin had already decided what they were going to do with Jesus before he even showed up at the court. They already knew. They didn't want to hear anything else. Many people are like that. They don't want to hear about Jesus. They've already made their decision. I know what's best. I know what's right. I know what I'm going to do with my life. Perhaps you're like the soldiers who mocked Jesus. Many people mock Jesus and mock God's people and think it's all a load of rubbish. Or maybe you're like Peter. Peter stands at a distance and waits to see the outcome. And maybe some of you here this evening are thinking, well, I'm going to wait and see. I'll wait and see what happens. I'll wait and see if, if, uh, you know, if, if God will show me more clearly. But the difference between Peter back then and where we are today is that we've seen the outcome. Because the gospel doesn't end with this courtroom drama the gospel ends with the resurrection. I know we're going through Matthew's gospel, and I might have sport the ending for you, but he does rise again. So we know the outcome. And there is no time to just wait and see. Because God can call us to stand before him at any moment at all.
We have to be ready. We've looked at that with the return of Jesus. It could happen at any time. We have to be ready right now. You can't just say, well, God, I'm going to wait and see. You've got to come to Jesus today. Come to Jesus now. Because you never know when it's too late. There is only one right verdict. Caiaphas's words of confession should have sounded familiar to us because we've heard something similar before. We've heard words like this from Peter on behalf of the disciples in Matthew chapter 16, where we read this. But what about you, Jesus asked? Who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. That's the response. And because he is the Messiah, the Son of the living God, let us respond by following him. Well, we're going to, uh, in a moment, share the Lord's Supper, uh, which is always a wonderful way, isn't it, to respond to God's word, especially as we're looking at Jesus leading up to the cross. It's great that we can come around uh, this Lord's Supper and be forced again to think again about the cross. But before we come to the table, uh, we're going to uh, uh, hear the words uh, of Behold the Lamb who bears our sins away. So as we hear these words, let's prepare our hearts to come again around the Lord's table and remember the death of our Lord Jesus Christ for our sins. Sleep. 
Just take a moment of silence before we uh, come around the Lord's Supper. Uh, just take time to confess sin, to thank God, just to think about what we've heard tonight, and then we'll uh, have this time together. So let's just be quiet, and then I'll pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that Jesus truly is the Son of Man, sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. We thank you that he is the one with all power and all authority, and yet he has come and he has died in our place for our sins. As we consider who Jesus is, we are just absolutely amazed that he would go through what we have read tonight and more uh, for us. And we were so glad that we can come around this uh, table, eat this bread and drink this cup to remember what you have done and to confess to each other and remind ourselves that we believe in the forgiveness of sins. And we thank you that we can believe in that because Jesus has died in our place. So we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. So we come to the Lord's Supper to remember uh, the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ that he has made for our sins. Uh, we eat the bread and we drink the cup. And as we do so, as I was saying in prayer, we uh, we confess to God and to one another that we believe that this is enough for the forgiveness of all of our sins. Uh, we, we look at our own hearts and we can say, 
The Lord's forgiven my sin, and we look at our brothers and our sisters, and we say, and so God has forgiven their sins as well. And we remember that, and we thank God for his wonderful gift. Uh, This meal is for those who are Christians, uh, those who have confessed their sins, and they uh, confess that they are in need of a saviour and have trusted that Jesus is the one who is the only way of forgiveness. If that doesn't describe you, um, or you're not walking in obedience to our Lord Jesus Christ, then don't be embarrassed at all to let the bread and the cup pass you by. Uh, But I would encourage you to watch what is going on, uh, because it does show us, again, the gospel. shows us what Jesus has done. Well, I'd ask if the servers would come as we... uh, partake of the bread. The bread reminds us of the body of Jesus Christ given for us, his body in the place of our body. And Jesus said to his disciples, take and eat. This is my body. So the bread is going to be placed in your hands. And then if you would hold onto your bread, we'll eat the bread together.
Jesus said, take and eat, this is my body. Well, the cup uh, reminds us of the blood of Jesus Christ, the shedding of which brings us the forgiveness of sins. And Jesus said, drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. So please, uh, as with the bread, if you would, uh, well, not unlike the bread, if you would take the cup, uh, but like the bread, hold on to it, and then we'll drink uh, the cup together. Jesus said, drink this in remembrance of me. Well, the final um, song that we were having before uh, the Lord's Supper uh, has a final verse and chorus, which we're going to have now. Uh, but as you notice, the words say, uh, with thankfulness and faith we rise. So I think we should stand uh, for this bit, uh, just because I think it would be a good thing to do. If, uh, yeah, anyway, so let's just uh, let's stand uh, as the music uh, plays for us. <laughs> Thank you. 
Paul writes, For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So until he comes, amen. Thank you.